Hello and welcome to Editing Aloud. My name is Sameh Zake. With me at the desk today is Warren Kwanita Genevieve as well as Karen. So we're going to start off by taking a look at the week that's been um, developing and that's uh, a lot of it has to do with state capture. And uh, Duduzani has been or was on the, st on the stand recently and he's been like his dad denying, denying, denying your, your, your take on that, Genevieve. Um, yes, so very much, he, he's, he's very much... Um, a bit, he, he comes across a bit differently to his father, but in, in the end, and I think Karen wrote it today in the business day, in the end, he's pretty much his father, like father, like son. He denied most things, even a simple thing, a meeting between him and Nwako Ramaklaudi, where Ramaklaudi said, I knew him well, he was like a son. This was during Ramaklaudi's um, testimony. And I told him, what are you doing? I hope you're not getting involved in illegal things, you know. Like a nice conversation, he's like, uh, no, I can't. I don't remember anything like that. And it's just like, and and the whole whole thing is, I'm not corrupt. People are painting me corrupt. Um, worried about having a fair trial or the the commission dealing with his evidence fairly, which is pretty much what his father said. Yeah. I mean, his father had a very radically different approach in that you know it was this entire rhetoric around I have been the target. All my political and legal problems are the consequence of a foreign agency plot against me, intelligence agency plot. People like Nwako Ramatlodi are apartheid spies who have been planted there. I knew the identities of these spies and therefore for the last three decades I've been the subject of this attempt to a, assassinate me. Uh, through multiple assassination attempts, including at a Muscundi concert with a suicide bomber. That was one of the highlights. Yeah. Um, and then also, you know, assassinate my cat, um, character, politically neutralize me. And it's one of the, the, one of the allegations that he's made, for instance, in his, his permanent stay of prosecution application, which is where the judgment will be delivered on Friday. Dudazani Zuma makes none of those kind of grand narrative um, claims, but he does very much portray himself as a victim. And one of the, the strongest aspects of that was uh, to go up against um, Tuli Madansela, the yeah. former public protector, much like his father has done. Um, remember, of course, uh, then President uh, Zuma saying that the reason that he was seeking to interdict the release of the state of capture report was because, quote unquote, she was going to release it without having heard her, his side of the story. Of course, we know subsequently she then releases audio of a four-hour interview in which he sort of studiously avoids answering any questions on the basis of needing legal advice. Uh, Durizani Zuma making similar vermin saying that you know, indeed, while he did get an invitation, he was served with a Section 7-9 notification. He was subpoenaed. He wasn't actually given an adequate response, time to respond or opportunity to respond. And the question then becomes, if, if you are wholly innocent and you have been derided or undermined in this way, um, you know, surely it isn't that you need like massive prodding or massive invitations to come and actually say, listen, this is totally untrue. You know, you guys are saying things about me. This evidence is nonsense. Let me prove. Yeah. Let me put on the mm -hmm. table. And, you know, you know, just as the former president, um, in the opportunity that he was given by Madansela to give his side of the story, and she, I mean, that audio recording is quite compelling. It's still freely available where she's literally like, I'm asking you about your son's business dealings. 
surely this is stuff you should know. And he's, you know, well, this has implications for me. Um, I think that, you know, the strategy of silence has been very deliberate. And I think this, uh, this thing now of trying to blame her for choices that they made um, is an interesting um, subversion of what ex exactly happened. And certainly she's come out strongly and said, Dudazani Zuma is absolutely lying. We even offered to go this to Dubai. This is Chilina, right? Chilina Maranzella yeah. saying we offered to go to Dubai. We said we would do Skypes. <coughs> we offered them everything and, and they refused. Um, and of course, ultimately, the commission will need to make a determination about in which circumstances they, they accept that. Yeah, yeah. Your, your, your take on this? You see, the thing is, what, what interests me is, is the approach by those implicated by state capture of a coming with massive legal teams. So, you know, Dudazani Zuma's legal team was at an eight member, yeah, seven, you know, or eight. Yeah. seven or eight, massive top names. But also, they're kind of understanding now that if you play this game long enough, at best, at best, best case scenario, you're going to have a condemnation of the, you know, of Ju Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo in his report, and they know, sitting on the other side of 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 that witness box, that the criminal justice system is so far broken that actually, um, I mean, because. Dudazani Zuma ought to be charged with, you know, and, and the Guptas in, in the bribery case of, of, of BC Jonas. Mm. So he goes there, just denies that bit of it, and then, you know, carries on on this tirade of everything else that's not really important, derailing the commission a little bit. Because they know that if you just play it out, you'll, eventually the political wheel will turn. And, and that, for me, is the more worrying thing about this, is that the legal strategy is now being sort of copied by all of those implicated by state capture to realize, you know what, it's really not even about the facts anymore. If you just create enough chaos at the time, um, you'll be able to, to, to you know, see the end of it. And if you think about it, when we reported in, in March 2016 about this Jonas meeting, there was a unilateral denial by Oak Bay, which represented both the Guptas and I reached out to Dujazani at the time for comment on the story, and there was a denial that there was no such meeting at all. And now it's almost to come out to say, okay, let's pick and choose what we deny. Let's, let's now create a narrative that maybe people will then, um, you know, People who believe we corrupt will continue believing we corrupt, but then it's my word against the BC Jonas. And the reality of it is, the way they they playing their cards now, they don't have too much to lose. I think that that the problem of the state capture commission is that you're going to end up having uh, a report that tells us or whatever is already in the public domain. And the problem is that the criminal justice system is not going to be able to follow up. And these people who are sitting in those witness mm. boxes know that they were part of the capture of the criminal justice system. So they can come there and create a spectacle about, um, you know, Tuli Maranzela, when mm. everyone knows the fact, you know, is that's not the facts. You can deny, you can... So it, it's almost as if it's like the selective game that you're playing, that, okay, I'll admit to taking Mkabisi Jonas to the meeting, but I won't admit that we spoke about this. And, you know, and so in that way, it's just his word against Nguakora Matlodi, for example. And like Kanisa said, in the end, the Chief Justice cannot make a finding that you are corrupt and must go to jail. He can say this needs to be investigated. So all it's going to do is pass it on to the criminal justice system. And then how long do we wait for that? Because this commission, it's already more than a year. I don't think we're close to, to ending off. Karen earlier was saying it needs to finish by February. There is no way it is going to finish by February.
I mean, also interesting with the criminal um, case, which of course the <coughs> NPA provisionally will, will actually withdrew against Dudazani Zuma. Dudazani Zuma's version now is that Mkabisi Jonas didn't actually even make a statement on that case. But I mean, that case in and of itself is it's a kind of he said, she said, mm. um, you know, there are surrounding circumstances, for instance, the fact that after this meeting, which we know happened, we then see the shock removal of Nene a few months later in circumstances where he's replaced by Des von Royen for four glorious days of Des's career and then promptly replaced by Pravin Gordon. Um, you know, there's a lot of surrounding stuff that, you know, there was clearly, there was a, there was a removal of a finance minister there. Um, and can the inquiry make certain determinations based on the probabilities of the surrounding things that happened? But for me, you know, Mkabisi, Jonas's meeting, et cetera, et cetera, that may be a difficult case to prove beyond reasonable doubt in a criminal court. What I think is far more compelling, of course, is the stuff around Tegeta, around Glencore, around mm. ESCOM, mm. where we know that, um, you know, Mosabe Zizwane, it very much appears, went um, and, and was part of a meeting to, to sort of force the sale of that mine, that there was, you know, there were efforts by ESCOM to put Glencore in a really precarious financial, force it into business rescue, those kind of things, because there's a clear pattern, a paper trail. And so, you know, these cases will be won and, won, won and lost on the bank statements, on the paper trails, on the telephone records. What people say yeah. and do, it's not about mm. witnesses. It's actually about the cold, hard forensic aspects, which we haven't seen playing mm. out in the, yeah, in the, the commission. In the commission. But the thing is, those things are happening behind the scenes. Terence Nombembe, the former AG of this country, is involved in those investigations. And that will be what ultimately can and will or potentially result in, in convictions. Can I ask this question? Is it, are we getting a sense early on that um, the, the, the state capture proceedings, given what you're saying, the strategy that these guys are applying, it's kind of rendered almost irrelevant? So I think it's, it's dangerous to say that, but I yeah. do think that there's growing frustration in the public. Mm. I mean, people have fatigue from the drama that plays out at the, at the State Capture Commission. Yep. And I don't know if that's a, something that the evidence leaders need to fix, but, but the reality of it is that... Um, you, 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 we need to move away from the stuff that you read on News 24 and Sunday yeah. Times for the last three years, years ago. to the point of, oh, actually, here as an evidence leader, here is, like you said, these are the, the bank statements, the, you know, that kind of, of forensic investigations. And my worry is, similarly with the criminal justice system, is that you're asking the public to be too patient and to, to have confidence in a system that has been broken before. And when you look at the Marikana Commission as just an, as, uh, an example mm. of that, the Marikana Commission, you know, you have Judge Ian Farlam years later, seven years later, saying, uh, you know, I couldn't do much now. It's, mm. it's the NPA and the NPA, no one can give you a uh, reason why there hasn't been action in terms of the um, the Marikana Commission. So now you, we have that as a point of reference. And now I look at the Zonda Commission of Inquiry investigating state capture and I'm like, hmm, I'm a little bit nervous that you're putting too much of political hope into something that may not give you the results. The best case scenario is that politically, okay, you were implicated by the report, okay, you step aside, but then you manifest three years later as not Minister of Police, but Minister of Arts and mm. Culture. I mean, the <laughs> profound irony, of course, is that the one person who resigned of a state capture was in Tlantlanene, yeah. the very yeah. same person who essentially initiated through his removal this entire investigation. The guys that are, you know, really at the heart of the problem are not exactly the type that will 
step step down. down. Yeah. It, we don't have that kind of culture. Yeah. It's well, always the decent ones, unfortunately. I'd like to say that uh, Dudazani seems to have the same uh, bipolar memory as his father, so maybe that's a genetic thing. But I think <laughs> the, just talking to the general theme of uh, both what's happening with the State Capture Commission and the, and the lack of prosecutions and what's happening in the economy is that I think everyone's just getting frustrated with this President Ramaphosa and this complete inability to do anything. I mean, uh, we know these things are out. They have been revealed in the public domain for many years already. People need to start going to jail. In the same way, when we look at the economy and the absolute crisis that we have there with unemployment, we're saying we need to do, we need to act. You know, that, that Moody's decision is going to come in November and it really doesn't look like we've done enough to stave off a credit rating downgrade. And that is going to put this country on uh, what Clem Santa called the, the low road. We're going to be out of the Premier League without the investment grade. So, you know, we understand that there's political factions inside the ruling party, but, you know, someone's got to step up and act. But I think the, the real challenge here is the, 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 the optimism that was based on, on smoke and mirrors. And I think that's the biggest problem. The optimism about the growth of the economy, the optimism about the cleaning up of the state was literally premised on one man's mm. words, not even his actions. Mm. And I think that is going to create a bigger crisis because of this people and I expect people were expecting to have jobs. People ex were expecting for the economy that the economy would grow. People were expecting that state capture would be dealt with in some way. And now it was literally premised on a phenomenon of a new dawn, which, you know, is smoke and mirrors. Oh. Operated. All right, <laughs> let's, let's hit uh, pause the conversation for now. Do join us after the break. Welcome back. Um, so, Konita, there was this IR report that um, came out in um, support of, uh, of, of, of the DA, um, basically. Just uh, <laughs> talk, us through, talk us through that. So, so the, the DA is having a catastrophic internal fight of note at the moment um, and it's been fueled by the Inter Institute for Race Relations where they published an opinion piece really that said they believed a white man and that's their words not mine yeah. Alan Winde should should take over the party but this is like part of a broader context and the the fight uh, against Musi Maimani that stems back all the way to the time when he effectively, um, you know, took action against Helen Ziller, uh, um, you know, for her colonialism tweets. And so the problem now is that um, you have um, Musi, uh, which is besieged, who is besieged in a corner. There's calls for his removal, and the premise for that is obviously the use of the election results. Um, and then there, there is a panel, a so-called independent panel, headed by um, the DA's former strategist, um, former CEO, um, Ryan Kutsia, where, they, where, where they're now analyzing the party's results. And all indications are that it's pointing at Musi Maimani. Then at the same time, there's this ideological uh, divide about things like... Um, diversity clause, whether the DA leadership should represent the constituency of South Africa. Effectively, it can't be a majority white male party. Mm. Um, and so that, that kind of, and you know, the issue of non-racialism, how do you see non-racialism? Some people say you cannot talk, I mean, that's the biggest issue in the DA is that you, we don't talk about race. So, so any efforts of transformation should not be uh, approached from an um, space. from a space of of of, um, of race, and then there's the Helen Ziller phenomenon, mm. which is 
Peninsula literally ruling from the grave and now deciding, actually, um, I might come back for the position of, um, of, of um, James Self, which is a very important position. That, posi that, that position that James Self has held for more than 20 years was, is a position that really controls the running of the party. Mm. And that is, I think, more important than the leader of the party. Yeah, there's three, there's three strands to the, the DA meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> the, or the, the DA leadership first, I think, to understand. You've got your leader, you've got the CEO of the staff, which yes. what, what Ryan could see was, and then the James Self position, which is CEO of the structures of the party. And these three are supposed to work together. So, and, and the CEOs are very important positions. So now the fight, the, the issue with Mayamani's leadership, people are feeling, well, oh, we need someone to come in and fix this. And no one has a candidate. The liberal side of the party, there is no candidate from anyone to go up against Musi Mayaman. If they had to hold an election today, and I think it's a big reason why a lot of them are saying no to an early Congress, because who would be the candidate? Who comes after Musi Mayaman? So if we move to the federal council position, we bring in someone like a Helen Ziller, and she can start there in terms of going back to the way they, they were, their base, going back to their base, which they lost in the elections. And so it's the, the, the federal council position has almost become like a proxy for the leadership because we can't change the leadership right now, the leader right now. We have no one else. The proxy battle moves to there, or the battle, mm. the battle moves to there. I think one of the pivotal things that they learned from the election is, is that the DA in many respects manifests the exact same difficulties of the ANC, which is also locked in its own factional battles. Ideologically, it has two very different camps um, that seem to be unable to produce any kind of coherent strategy in terms of um, dealing with South Africa and its difficulties. And what they were speaking about earlier, um, you know, we've had situations where certain members of the party, black members of the party, have tweeted about BEE, for example, and then had certain other white members of the party openly kind of correcting them on social media um, or, or correcting them um, or, or sort of undermining what they're saying. And that doesn't look good. There's, there's no sense of a unified DA. There's no sense just as there's not a sense of a unified ANC. And what we saw with the last elections and where the DA, I think, would be very, very concerned is that they appear to have lost significant levels of voters to the Freedom Front Plus, which is ideologically very certain of what and who it is. Um, you know, much like the EFF, there's a kind of very sturdy sense of political identity there. Whereas with the DA and the ANC, which are both sort of hemorrhaging voters, um, people are not exactly sure what, what you stand for. And that's what people want. They want certainty. They want a political identity that they can depend on. And at the moment, the DA simply does not have that. Mm. And the IRR has now come out in the campaign to say, save the opposition. Because honestly, I mean, away from the IRR, I think and I believe that this uh, hemorrhaging of the DA is bad for democracy mm. because you need good, viable opposition mm. parties. Mm. You need opposition parties that are representative of a broader South Africa uh, to be open and, and, and fair and, and, you know, you can have, uh, you know, a Mike Waters and a Bumzila in the same space. Because mm. that's the South Africa that we live in. That's, that's the ideal scenario. But the IRR is capitalizing on this, obviously support, in support 
of the very liberal grouping, uh, what do they call them, the 1959 Yeah, But let's also remember the IRR is a revolving door between the IRR and the DA. For years, yeah. people who are disgruntled with the DA or upset <laughs> or they didn't get into a position, land up going to the IRR. And, and vice versa, people from, the, people from the IRR who want to go into politics go, go to, to the, the DA. DA. The IRR has always been, well, they've premised themselves as a liberal think tank and the DA was the liberal party. Hmm. And so that revolving door... So now they want to claim their party back. Yeah. That's what it seems. Um, Musi, does he, does, he, does he have control of this party at all anymore? No, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a difficult thing to say, I think, um, in the sense that if you have to go to a snap vote, I mean, he, he, is, he is supported. That's not, yes. you know, in, in, the, in the party structures. The problem is that um, the people who are opposing him, I mean, and, and you can uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Genevieve, but, it, but, uh, but I think that the people that are opposing him have nothing to lose. So they are willing to burn the house down. That's the well, impression I mean, that I get. Down is to that, uh, I think last weekend, sorry, Jen, mm -hmm. last weekend we saw two major leaks vis-a-vis -vis Musi Maimani with regard to the so-called Stein of Kwa, mm. with regard to his home, mm. the renting, you know, yeah. bang, whatever issue. Now, that didn't just come from nowhere. That was incredibly strategic. We know how politics work and we know how leaks work. And, you know, the kind of, I think that it's very apparent that, you know, <coughs> that kind of information which would not necessarily have come out in the past um, is now being, you know, he clearly has some, some weak spots. Mm. Um, and I know that, you know, certainly in terms of um, his decision with regards to to the public protector and Cyril Ramaphosa um, and coming out at a press conference and saying, you know, co completely endorsing a report which is now um, being challenged and which the president says is ultimately quite fundamentally legally flawed, baseless and ultimately potentially driven by an ulterior purpose, essentially saying that he wanted an ad hoc committee established in parliament to deal with it. Um, and it was significant that at that press conference, you know, some of the major players from the party were not there. And my understanding is that they refused to be there because the DA itself has taken a position on Busi Siwam Kobani, saying she's incompetent, she's unfit for office. They've litigated against her honestina, saying that, you know, this is someone who shouldn't be in this position, who's done manifestly unconstitutional things. And then in that context, to then openly endorse a kind of very politically explosive report which could have profound consequences for the country um, you know, I think, you know, leaves many people saying, well, what is what is the DA's position on her? Like, do you want her out of office or when she does things, you know, that you, you know, so it's very, I think that was one of his, also one of his major problems. And I think that that will also come back to bite him in the future. Mercy's got support of the provincial leaders. What you need to look at is whether the delegates or constituencies under those leaders support him. Um, and then you've got the MPs, which is a, a different kettle of fish. You've got a lot of the MPs who don't support him with those who do. So we, we're looking at a very superficial thing right now. We're looking at the leaders. Oh, but we've got the support of the provincial leaders. Oh, we've got support of the MPs. But there's the structures underneath. Mm. But and that's what we're going to see at Federal Council, because a Federal Council, when they vote for um, it's, I think it's going to come down to a, a Zillow or Trollope for that position of James Self. There are 120, about 120 delegates. And they are cons so then you start getting councillors and things like that to start coming in. 
And it's going to be interesting to see the way, because the trollop, trollop is seen to be the moosey side of things, and Zilla obviously the more liberal. It'll be interesting to see who wins that. And then I think we would get a bit of a better sense on what mm. the structures beneath those leaders are thinking. But the DA has never been a grassroots party. No. And, and you can't compare to the ANC to say that a voter outcome is indicative of, of, of branch Very support. Very true as well. Because that's not how the DA works. The yeah. DA like works. wants the DA to be. That's yeah. how Musi wants the DA to be. All right. Um, a lot of... Uh, um, shiftings in the political um, spectrum. Let's get some company news. TJ, sorry, <laughs> TJ, uh, Warren, right. I, mean, I mean to say. Out of airtime, that's the front cover of the um, uh, financial mail. Celsi in a bit of trouble. Classic story of the, the two boys with the Midas touch coming up against a perennial uh, poor cousin of the mobile network industry. And it was the, mo the poor cousin that, that thus far has won the battle. So you had Mark and Brett Levy, uh, these two wonderful entrepreneurs had started Blue Label, listed the business. They sell all, most of the airtime in the country for, your, uh, for, for uh, um, all the mobile network operators. They uh, decided to buy into CellC in, in about uh, 2016 and uh, invested a lot of money. And uh, once again, uh, for a company that's about 19 years old now and has only made profits in two years over that time, uh, it's burned through all its money and now needs another bailout. So they uh, effectively um, defaulted on their interest payments in July and uh, they've gone back to their shareholders now. And so this whole, prob this whole problem of how does this company compete against the likes of uh, MTN and Vodacom is back on the surface. How are they going to uh, recapitalize themselves? How much money do they need? And how are they going to change things that uh, they're not going to end up like this in, in three years' time? That's essentially what the story is all about. So what, what is, what is the, the, the sentiment? Can they, can they save this? I think so. Uh, there's, there's a very uh, kind of uh, secretive billionaire, um, Jonathan Baer, that's interested in buying into the company. And he sounds like is prepared to replace the debt, which is costing Celsius. It's very expensive debt, about 9 billion rand. He's prepared to come in and uh, provide the debt at a cheaper rate, reduce some of the debt, but then obviously take a stake in the company. So that's very promising, and that's premised on the company um, effectively reaching an agreement with MTN to use MTN's network and operate as what we call a, mo um, a virtual mobile network operator. So it could mean that the business changes course significantly and then obviously would have the benefit of the investment by Jonathan Baer. So I do think uh, it, there are reasons to, to say that this is not, not going to end in tears again, but uh, uh, there's a lot of hard negotiations that need to take place before this all uh, is agreed to and put, in, uh, put into place. Good place to leave it. Thank you to everybody for joining me at the table, and uh, see you again next time for another edition of Editing Aloud.